Good morning. It is the last day of the year we get to be together. It's so good that we get to do that. Um, it's been quite a year. It's been some changes that have taken place, uh, but our God is faithful and He is constant. Uh, he is steadfast in His love for His church. And we need to be reminded of that. And we're reminded of that as we just go to His Word. Um, and we'll do that. We're going to go back to 1 Kings, where we were before Advent. Um, and we'll finish 1 Kings in January, and then we're going to go to Galatians, just to kind of give you an idea of where we're headed. Um, but to bring us back to the context of 1 Kings, uh, this was written likely from the perspective of God's people being in exile. Okay? They, were, they had been taken away. They were not at home. Uh, they were scattered, and they were looking back going, how did we get here? What happened? Our history is riddled with power plays and failures and destruction and following other gods. And we, we saw David, and we saw King Solomon, and then we saw our people divided. Uh, and we saw a series of not-so-great kings. And then we got to Ahab, and they looked back over their history and they probably ask questions like, where, where is God in all this? What is he doing? Do, we have some of those kinds of questions, don't we, in our lives? Like, what's God up to? What is he doing? Where is he at? In this passage, we're going to be surprised by grace. <laughs> we're going to be surprised by how modern it is, how relevant it is. It's a passage full of power plays and pluralistic culture and politics and war and justice. And it's going to force us to wrestle with a God who deals in life and death, justice and mercy and grace and power. And it will bring us to our own questions. Like, what is God doing? Is he there? Does God care about the day-to-day -day stuff or is he just sort of dealing with the big things? That's a question we've got. And if he's not interested in all of those little things and all those aspects of our lives, then whose voice determines those issues? Which voice gets the most volume? We're going to see in this passage that life works best under God's word, the inventor of all of life. So let's turn to his word now in 1 Kings. It is, yes, a whole chapter, and there's a lot there printed on in the bulletin. I'm going to read just the first 22 verses, and then I'm going to break it up throughout the text. But let me encourage you that this is quite a dynamic story, so let's work through it together. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him in horses and chariots, and he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. 
Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. He has sent to me for my wives and my children, for my silver and my gold, and I didn't refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you first demanded of your servant I'll do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast at himself as he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, he was drinking with the kings in the booths, and he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I'll give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? And he said, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out of Samaria. And he said, If they come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring... The king of Syria will come against you. The word of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word, your voice, would be the loudest in our heads and in our hearts this morning. And going out of here this morning, I, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. All for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you may see that I titled this Power Plays. And it's a chapter full of power plays. Even the, pa- the part we've seen so far, it's power play after power play. Jockeying for power and position. And it, it made me, as I was reading through this, it made me think of a, uh, a movie from the 1980s called Wall Street. Anybody all remember seeing that if you're my age or older, maybe? It's Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas, and their characters were sparring over the stock market. Um, to begin with, Sheen, Charlie Sheen's character, Bud Fox, he admires Douglas's character, Gordon Gecko. What a name. He admired him and wanted to, to be like him, wanted to have power like he had power, and so he tried to impress him with all sorts of gestures, and finally got into his good graces, and, and one day brought... Um, some insider information about his father's airline company. 
And so they planned out some trades to jockey for power to get the the ownership of this airline, basically. And they planned out where Bud Fox thought, well, I can be the president of the company and I can be important and all of that. And then he realized that Gordon Gecko cared nothing about the airline and was going to sell it all off for the money. And so then they are jockeying back and forth for power to figure out who's going to win this whole power play game. And finally, Bud Fox thinks he's got the upper hand, and then he goes to work the next day, only to be arrested by the federal government for insider trading. (laughs) It was a power play, jockeying for position, only to find out that there was a higher authority watching that he was totally oblivious to. Uh, Now, most of us, um, expecting or not doing insider trading and doing illegal um, stock market trades here, but we might be doing all kinds of very subtle forms of power plays in our lives. What do you think? With God, with our fellow man, kids, kids, you guys actually get this. You may not know what I'm talking about with a power play, but when your sibling has a piece of candy, What's your next move? You go to mom and dad, and you go, hey, brother's got candy. I get some too, right? It's a power play. <laughs> power play with mom and dad. But guess what? Uh, mom and dad, we, we do it too in all kinds of subtle ways. We all are working with power. All human beings are in some way or another using power. But to what end? What purpose? There's only two ways to use power. It's for self or for others. To use the title of a book that I was once given. I was given this book when I was actually ordained. It's called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And it's all about power in the kingdom. Because we do use power. It's not a bad thing. It's it's a thing. (laughs) And we can use it. But how we use power has everything to do with our view of God. So back to those initial questions, where is God in this, in in our day-to-day lives? Is he there? What are we doing? I think this text, this chapter shows us three things about Yahweh, our God, that he is there, that he's everywhere, and that he's the God over all life. So the God who is there, he is there. That may seem really obvious to us. We're all sitting here going, yeah, all right, Michael, I get it, okay. But do we functionally live like he's there? Maybe not. This is is a very modern text. It really rings true to our daily, our our modern situation. Now, this was an ancient world full of uh, gods, false gods, idols. And we may not have all of those things, but we may have a version. Uh, Ben-Hadad was more of a title likely than a name. Uh, a title like president. It was the, the multiple kings from Syria carried that title, Ben Hadad, and it literally means son of Hadad. <laughs> Hadad was a false god, a, a rain god. Uh, we've heard pri- uh, previous to this about uh, Baal, right? That false god also. And they, guess what? They both were, in some shape, form, or fashion, a rainstorm god. Why so many rain gods? Well, in that day, it was everyone's livelihood to have rain because it was an agricultural uh, society. 
If you didn't have rain, you didn't eat. You starved. It was famine. We don't really think we're that dependent on rain anymore because, you know, you can get to the grocery store. But we, we still are. But we have modern versions of a rain god where we go and find something to transact with in hopes that we get what we need or think we need or want. It, modern day rain gods or modern day rain idols could be our career. Think about it. What we give to this so that in hopes of getting something out of it that we think we need. Maybe a, a relationship that we've made everything that we think will meet our needs, that will further our reputation. It, it could be <laughs> the right angle on a selfie that can go on Instagram that will rain down likes on us so that we feel better about ourselves. You see, we do have modern-day rain gods. And there tends to be two types of people who seek to serve our idols. There's the, the bully types or the, the just go straight in and get it how I want it. Like Ben Haydad, he just showed up and he's like, hey, all your stuff is mine. I'm going to get what I want. Some of us are just driven and we're going to get what we want. And then there's Ahab who just sort of flips and flops with the wind and goes with whatever voice that's right next to him. He's listening to Ben Haydad and on that, that side of things he sees a guy who's more powerful. But maybe if he can get in his good graces he'll have mercy on him. And then he goes to his people and his people are like, no, no, don't do that. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll do, I'll do this instead. And he's flip-flopping all over the place but he's still just trying to, trying to preserve himself. We have voices that we listen to. Sometimes it's our own, like Ben Haydad. He was just, I think, listening to his own voice. Like, I want their stuff, and I'm going to get it. I want power, and I'm going to get it. Or we listen to every other voice around us, like Ahab. But then the voice of Yahweh shows up, doesn't it? You see, did you notice how Ben Haydad, his, he sent messengers, and it said, Thus said Ben Haydad. <laughs> and then there was that same phrase, but it was, Thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh when the prophet showed up. And so we see that Yahweh, our God, is there. He actually is there. But how? What does it mean for him to be there? Well, I'll give you three things. There's a whole lot of things that it means, more than we can cover this morning. But three things briefly. One is he's there as protection. He shows up and protects his people. Now, the ancient gods, the idols... They didn't care about their people. I mean, for one, they weren't a living thing. They weren't a thing at all. And so they certainly couldn't care about their people. They were there to be served and receive things. Our modern idols do the same. Again, if we think about a career, when has your career ever looked on you and said, oh, he or she's in trouble. Their marriage is tanking. Let's get involved. No, the career just wants more from you, right? It's not going to protect you. How about the God of reputation or social media status like we were talking about earlier? Have you ever seen that idol look on you and go, oh, he or she's struggling with depression or body image. Let's get involved and help. No. It just demands more and better posts so that we can hope that we'll feel better about our lives. We need it. Or we think we need it. But Yahweh shows up to protect his people. Secondly, he shows up to show grace. He's there to show grace. This is 
surprisingly grace-filled. You've got to think about who it is that God has showed up to protect. Ahab, the worst of the worst kings we've seen so far. He was vile. He had spit in Yahweh's face multiple times. Built up uh, temples to other gods. (laughs) Served other gods. But Yahweh shows up and shows him grace. The ancient idols and gods, they weren't into grace. It was all about performing. Perform for me and you get what you want. Transact with me and you get what you want. I was uh, recently at a presbytery meeting and one of the guys that was there was uh, sharing his testimony. And he said he grew up functionally uh, in performianity. We laugh because we know what that means. Performianity. Do good, don't sin too much, and you'll be accepted by God. But that's not Christianity, it's performianity. That's going to do one of two, that's going to send you to one of two places. One is you'll turn inward, go into hiding, and shell up a fake version of yourself. Because you can't be too messed up. (laughs) Or you go the other way and you just throw it all off and you say, well, I'm way too far gone for God to accept me, so I guess I just need to see myself to the door. But you need to know that their true God, the God of Christianity, is a God full of grace. Who will show grace to Ahab, who will show grace to you and I. I don't care who you are or what you've done. God is a God of grace. Thirdly, he's a God who, sh- who is there to have a relationship. He says, I'm going to give, Ahab, I'm going to give you all this into your hand. Why? So you shall know that I am the Lord. No, God wants to be known. Again, the, the idols, they don't want relationship. Again, they're not a thing, and so they can't know you. Our modern idols can't have relationship with you. You can't have, uh, your finances can't know the inner workings of your heart. <laughs> the things you struggle with, can they? Your bank account can't know your heart. <laughs> can't know what you struggle with. Even, even the very best or closest human relationship can't fully go there. Right? Only God knows us in and out intimately. And he says, I want you to know me. I don't want you to appease me. I don't want you to perform for me. I want you to know me. He has searched you and known you. And he still shows up. So we see that Yahweh is there. Our God is there. And he uses his power for, for our good. But when we forget that he's there, what do we do? We go back to building a series of power plays in our lives. One after the other that ultimately is to try to seek our own good. It was Adam and Eve's way at the beginning. The serpent convinced them that, hey, you can go and eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can power play with God. You can know these things for yourself. And guess what? We've just inherited that way of thinking all the way down to today. It's the way of the dragon, the way of the serpent in Genesis 3. When I was in college... Some of you know my story. I've shared it before here that I wasn't walking with the Lord. I may have told you that I was a Christian because I occasionally went to church. But I didn't know God. And I I came in contact with all these different worldviews in college. And I functionally got to the point where I had convinced myself that God was not there. That he wasn't real. And I was 
I was crushed by the weight of trying to make my life meaningful at that point. But, but God showed up. He did show up in my life. He was always there, and he showed that to me, and he made himself known. But then, so say we're like, okay, yeah, God, he's there. Of course he's there. I, I get that, and I know that. Is he everywhere? Is he in all the things? <laughs> Well, this passage shows us that, yes, he is. He's the God who is everywhere. The scene shifts to Syria, to Ben-Hadad's council after they've lost the battle. We'll pick up in verse 23, and I'll read to 30. The servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we'll fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. <clears throat> and they, came, they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Then Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. So, is God the God that is everywhere? Then Hadad took counsel, and they said, I don't think he is. I think he's... He's the God of the hills. They had success there. Let's fight on our turf, and we'll have success this time. They limited God. Or they thought he was limited. Do we limit God? Do we limit him in some ways? Do we think maybe he's not actually everywhere? I'll give you two ways that I think we limit him that I see here. One is in his reach. We limit his reach. Again, Ben-Hadad said, their God can't reach into the valleys. What valley do you believe he can't reach? Maybe it's the dark valley of sin, sin struggle. Maybe we think, well, he, doesn't, he can't see what I do behind closed doors when I'm by myself. Uh, or, or maybe he just isn't, he's not doing anything about it, so maybe he really is limited. Maybe he doesn't care, doesn't see it. Or maybe I'm just too far gone into this and he can't reach down into this and change it. Maybe it's the valley of just struggle. He can't reach down here into my depression, my health struggles, my struggling marriage. Yeah, he can get to some things, but he can't get to this. This is too much. This is too bad. This is too hard. What valley do you think that he can't reach? In 1986, Walter McMillan was wrongly 
imprisoned for murder in South Alabama. The stories say that his framing was racially motivated because he was a black man in a racially charged community. The jury sentenced him to life, and the judge overrode it and put him on death row. And he spent six years on death row facing a system that was totally against him. I'm sure he felt like he was in the valley that was beyond the reach of any hope at all. Now these stories captured in the movie Just Mercy, if you've seen that. Uh, Brian Stevenson shows up to do battle for Walter. And if you see the movie, you can see the character Walter. He, he's just got no hope. He sees Brian come, and he's like, you can't do anything. There's no hope here. You can't change this. But eventually, Brian got Walter exonerated in 1993. Do we find ourselves in dark places that we believe are beyond God's reach? Yahweh shows his people that that's just not true. Secondly, briefly, we limit him in his ownership. Right? We sort of think like, well, that's his stuff, this is my stuff. We do that in all kinds of ways, but here in this text, who, who won the war? Yahweh won the war. So then, whose prisoner is Ben-Hadad's? Yahweh's. But we're going to see what Ahab does with Ben-Hadad. Let's read on, verse 31 to 34. So the Syrians have fallen. Ben-Hadad has fled into the city, city into an inner chamber. And verse 31 picks up. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put on sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He's my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities." That my father took from your father, I will restore, and you will, you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. The tables had turned of the power struggle and the power plays, right? Ben Hadad had the power and the play in the beginning, and he came and Yahweh showed his power, and propped Ahab up to be in the position of having power over Ben-Hadad. But it seems that Ahab, I don't know what he means by, I don't know why he calls him his brother, other than just maybe he thinks, oh, this is another opportunity for a power play. I've got the upper hand. Maybe I can have Ben-Hadad now as a subservient vassal king under me. Maybe he's taking advantage of the situation to further his own ends. And so... He plays power, plays with power yet again. Here's the point, I think, for this part. We, we limit God. We begin to work our own power plays with him. Perhaps we tip the hat to him one day a week, but then try to carve out our own ways during the rest of the week. 
We take our circumstances and we steer them towards our own goals, even though we know it may not be pleasing to the Lord. Or we're toiling away anxiously, giving over to despair because we just don't believe his reach extends into the troubles we're facing. But Yahweh says, I am God of the hills and the valleys. We see also, thirdly here, third point, that God's the God over all life. And so we come to the last part of this chapter, this little two-part act that's really kind of strange but interesting. So I'll pick up in verse 35 and read to verse 43, the end of the chapter. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow, at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought, brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by me any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you, you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You, you yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. This is strange. Why does this prophet go to his fellow prophet and say, hey, smack me, please? And the one guy refuses. It seems like he's being a nice guy. He's like, oh, I'm not going to hit you. And then he goes, well, because you've not obeyed the voice of the, obeyed the, voice of the Lord, a lion's going to strike you down. Well, strange things happen sometimes in God's word, doesn't it? But I think the brief takeaway here is that Probably the safest place we can exist is under the word of God in obedience to God. I think that's the little mini lesson there for us. But the prophet goes on and finds another one, and he gets him to actually hit him, and he wounds him. And it was all so that he could have this disguise to go and catch King Ahab. And so he goes and puts a bandage on as if he had just come from the battle, and he's waiting for the king to plead his miserable case. He says... He said, King, I was given a prisoner of war to guard, and I, they, I was told that if he's gone, it's my life for his life. But I, you know, I got busy doing other things, and then he was gone. And, and now, what do I do, King? And the king's like, well, you pronounced your own judgment on yourself, so be it. And the prophet goes, yeah, yeah. He took the bandage off quickly, and the king recognized him. The king knew. The prophet gave the word of the Lord to the king, said, you've let my prisoner go, and so your life for his life. It's reminiscent of Nathan and David. When Nathan told David, King David the story of the man who stole the, the goat, and King David said, ah, oh, off with his head. 
And then he goes, you're the man, King David. It's similar here. This prophet, this man of God says, Ahab, you're the man. You're the one who has done this. Ahab is happy to dole out life and death, forgetting that Yahweh is the God over all of life. Now, just for a moment, we need to deal with a question that may pop up in our own hearts here. Certainly it pops up out in the world, and that is this. Wow, a God who devotes someone to destruction, that's hard. What do you do with that? Some people would say, I can't believe in a God who would do that. Some people would say, I believe love is love. Talking with a friend this week about that phrase and what that means. and We have to think about a a few things about that. For one, Ben Haydad was a bully on a national level. But two, that phrase, love is love. Just deal with that one. There's all kinds of versions of that. Uh, It sounds nice. It rings true, sort of, but it's actually empty. Because who defines it? Who defines love? Was it loving for the people who Ben Haydad would later go to destroy? Ironically, love is love is actually isolating and self-focused. Because the desire behind it is a statement that says, I'll let you do what you want to do, you let me do what I want to do, and we'll just call it love. And that's kind of dividing and isolating, isn't it? It's a logical fallacy because it's just a culture of self. Because love is seeking the good of another. Well, what is, whose standard of good? How good is your good, right? Here's the thing. Can we wrestle with our questions like that and still let God be God? Yes. Yes, we can. We should wrestle with those questions. They are good and important, but we need to let God still be God. In uh, Lord of the Rings, in the first uh, book, in the, they're in the Mines of Moria, the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo and Gandalf and the others, they're... In the mines, and Gollum is tracking them down in the mines, right? And they're being tormented by this Gollum creature. And when they sit, sit down to rest for a moment, Frodo says to Gandalf, it's a, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't, didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Gandalf goes, pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. (laughs) The point that we recognize here, we can wrestle with our questions, but we must let God be God. Only he can see all ends. Just because we cannot come up with a good reason for something doesn't mean one doesn't exist. So, perhaps now, We have seen that God is there. And maybe we've seen that he is truly everywhere and he's in all things. But now we must deal with him. We must deal with this God. We cannot power play him. So perhaps at this point we're left feeling with a a little unease. Is Yahweh a God of grace or justice? Which one will I get? He's a God of both. And I want to show you how. There's a theme in this passage that runs through the rest of the New Testament. And it's this. You see, God said to King Ahab, the king, your life for his life. 
And so goes the king, so goes the people, right? The people were included in that. But there is one king to come. Not a bad king, but a good king. A perfect king, in fact. And he will make the ultimate power play. A power play that can never be one-upped, can never be made null and void. It's the power play of King Jesus saying, my life's for yours. Justice and mercy meet in Jesus. So goes the king, so goes the people. But in this case, it's a perfect king. And we get credit for his perfection. And he takes the credit for our sin and failure. It's the greatest power play ever. It's a great exchange. It's the true definition of love. A love that comes all the way to us wherever we are, whoever we are, but refuses to leave us there. Rather, it takes us and makes us new, makes us whole, transforms us from the inside out, frees us from walking through this world, mapping out our next power play that we think will protect us or provide for us or cover over our failures or give us what we think we need. This power play, this power play says, it's done. Rest. Rest in my power that is for you. So, in conclusion, we could, we could consider that we are Bud Fox in Wall Street. And we found out, it's been found out of us that we are inside trading. We're doing illegal trades on the stock market. And we are arrested and taken in. And as we go in, we look around in hopes maybe Gordon Gecko will show up and he will rescue us. But Gordon Gecko's off doing his own thing. He doesn't show up. Just like the idols that we worship in this life, they don't show up. <laughs> they fail us. They walk away. But then the judge, just before ruling judgment, steps down, says, I'll take the rap for this one. Wouldn't it be great to rest in that? To rest from mapping out your next power play in this life. Rest from worrying about who might be around the corner ready to one-up us. Rest from the anxiety over, will this power play fail me again? Wouldn't it be great to know that there is one with ultimate power and he is for you? Perhaps you can hear his voice. He's saying, my life for yours. I came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve. And give my life as a ransom for many. That's the words of Jesus. Will you turn the volume up on that voice? How about that for a New Year's resolution? Turn the volume up on Jesus. Turn the volume up on the gospel. Don't go away today without responding to that voice. Step out of the world of power plays and into his finished work. Can we live the way of the Lamb? The way of using power where we say our lives for others. The only way that will be possible is if we hear Jesus' voice saying, my life for yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you that you turn the tables on power. You have ultimate power. We, we only work with the power that you've put in our hands and Lord, we use it all the time for ourselves, but free us from that, Lord. Remind us of the gospel. Help us to rest in it. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning 
who is not able to rest in your power, would you call them back into yourself to rest in your finished work? Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has yet to hear your voice that says, my life for yours. Would they hear it this morning? And would they respond to it? Would they surrender to it, Lord? May we all this morning surrender to your voice, to your word, to the gospel of grace. We pray for your glory and for our good. Amen.